This is a special Transit Unplugged. I'm your host, Paul Comfort. Great to be with you on another edition of the world's leading transit executive podcast, Transit Unplugged. And today, you know, you've heard a lot about the top 40 under 40 folks, right? And we like to include the the new folks in the industry and where they're going. We've done a podcast on them recently, but my good pal, Paul Tolliver, he and I were recently together at the APTA conference in Orlando. And he said, Paul, we need to have some of the legacy folks on the show. So Paul, thank you for having that great idea. You're welcome. So today I'm excited to have with us actually four of the uh, real pioneers in our transit industry that have been here a long time, Robert Prince, Fred Gilliam, Rod Dearden, and Paul Tolliver, who all have served in senior executive positions in one or more major transit systems. And so today we're going to talk to them about their careers, their lives, where they're at right now, and where they see the industry going. It's great to get some wisdom and perspective from some folks who have kind of already been to the mountaintop, as they say. So I, I want to kick it off with Rod Dearden. Rod, tell us a little about yourself and what you've done over your career and what you're doing right now. Thank you, uh, Paul, for having me here. And it's so good to see some um, uh, good old friends. Goodness, all the old fr- all the friends seem to be old nowadays. But uh, it's it's just like uh, uh, going to an APTA meeting in the 1980s. Uh, it's <laughs> good good people. Uh, are you asked about uh, our 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 history uh, uh, first and in, in you know, I, I got started in transportation, working my way through college as a brakeman on the Southern Pacific Railroad for seven years of summers and vacations. And then and then after coming back from the tour of duty in Vietnam, I, I started a, a business and then got elected to the County Board of Supervisors in Santa Clara County, Silicon Valley. And because I was the youngest and because transit was a terrible condition, uh, they assigned me transportation as my portfolio. And so I began to be uh, involved in, in transportation. Uh, our, our county boards of supervisors in California are the most powerful political positions in the state. So we don't run for higher offices. We just hang on to those seats and, and, and chairing the transit board for 20 years until term limits were adopted uh, was a real gift uh, uh, to a young fellow who began by being too smart for his britches and, and finally uh, working with people like like these uh, folks you have today, uh, they taught me enough to be able to understand really what was going on. And I was happy to uh, be allowed to chair uh, nine different rail construction projects in, in uh, Silicon Valley and, and uh, the Regional uh, Metropolitan Transportation Commission and the National American Public Transit Association and vice chair for six years of the uh, U.S. Uh, of the International Transit Association, or UITP, uh, back in Brussels. And uh, it was a, a wonderful run, and and I enjoyed it very much, and I hope I did a little good along the way. Uh, That's great. And I don't know if you mentioned it, but I mean, you're the past chair of APTA, right? Past chair of APTA and uh, past chair of the uh, Transit Cooperative Research Program for the National Research Council and and uh, a lot of different other things. Uh, it's kind of like our old rock rolling downhill. A lot of stuff sticks to it. <laughs> That's great. Well, what what a great career you've had. Robert Prince, tell us a little about what you've done in your career. Well, I started off on the bottom. So I I tell people if it had wheels on it, I drove it. Uh, buses, I started as a bus operator, um, ended up on the trains. Um, so I've had bus, trains, and trolley experience. I had over 20 jobs at the MBTA. Um, during my, my tenure there, and ended up after 25 years as the general manager. 
Um, I've seen it all from snow to 9-11. You know, it's, it's been quite a ride. I left there and went to the dark side and ended up with AECOM for 14 years. Spent a little time in Puerto Rico um, with Trenabano. And now I um, work as a consultant with HNTB and um, I do a little personal consulting. So it's been a it's been quite a ride. And I truly appreciate being here with you, Paul, and, and these seasoned gentlemen. Excellent. Fred, tell us a little about yourself and your background. Thank you, and thank you for having me. Uh, I started my career in uh, 1961 uh, in, in August in Memphis uh, as a traffic checker. In fact, uh, I think it was probably the lowest paid position they had there. Uh, and I, I worked my way from there to most of the different departments. After 11 years, I joined uh, Tulsa Transit uh, and spent three years there as the executive director, then joined ATE management in Denver as assistant manager, back to Memphis, then to New Orleans as the general manager. Uh, then I spent four years as their senior management executive for ATE, uh, covering 16 states, back to uh, Memphis, then to Houston. Uh, then I went into private business, uh, a minority owner in a bus manufacturing facility uh, or plant, then uh, returned to the public sector in Austin as the CEO there and retired uh, in 2009. What a career, Fred. Wow. That Thank means you. I couldn't keep a good job. Yeah. <laughs> and Paul Tolliver, give us some on your background. Yeah, I'm kind of um, like a lot of these gentlemen, um, a number of different jobs and our places that I worked. I started uh, out of graduate school, came in that way, and I started uh, right off with uh, ATE management and services company like Fred Gillum. Uh, I deliberately sought out how to get into the public transit business, though. Uh, I was in Cincinnati, and I was looking at a position, a job with the transit system. In those days, it was Cincinnati Transit. And I saw in the paper that they were getting ready to go public from a private to a public carrier. And uh, I nosied around and found that this company, ATE Management, had the lead in getting that contract kind of politically. So I walked in the ATE Management offices that were headquartered in Cincinnati and you know applied for a position. And uh, either good luck or bad luck, I was hired by ATE Management and started off with them kind of in a trainee role, following buses in the morning from four to midnight. Uh, we call the beginnings of what is now called a COA, a Comprehensive Operational Analysis, where we track buses, track their running time, track how many people got on and off, where they got on and off. So you learned if you didn't start driving a bus, you started following buses and doing that type of work. So I got a job with them, uh, ultimately got a job assigned to Cincinnati, Queen City Metro, with them for three years. And then I went to Tulsa after Fred left and as assistant manager for operations. I moved from there to South Bend, Indiana, the home of our current DOT secretary. And I was the CEO of that system. It was 35 buses during rush hour, six day a week service, no service on Sunday. Every bus was off the street by 7 p.m. So times have changed. I went from Yeah, you had South a good Bend. job. <laughs> That's right. Went from South Bend to New Orleans, New Orleans to San Francisco, San Francisco to Seattle, 
and spent most of my career in Seattle, Washington, and uh, retired my first retirement from there uh, in the early 2000s. Uh, started my own consulting firm, came back, worked with MV Transit for three years from 13 to 17 in Detroit during the bankruptcy days. MV was hired to come in and help stop the bleeding during that period. I remember that, yeah. And uh, they asked me to kind of lead their team in Detroit, which I did for three years. And then re-retired, now I live in Florida. And uh, watching all of our great friends in the Midwest and the Northeast in this cold weather. So that's kind of my history. (laughs) And that thanks for including me. Absolutely. Rod, so what are you doing now? You didn't mention what you're doing now. Everybody else did. After the... uh... Uh, 20 years on the County Board of Supervisors in Silicon Valley here, took the responsibility of of, uh, starting the Mineta Transportation Research Institute. Uh, And uh, uh, we got that started from nothing in 93. Uh, It was reauthorized five times by Congress. And now it's the largest policy transportation research center in the world. And uh, it has over 300 researchers in in nine countries around the world with a multi-million dollar annual budget and and doing just fine. And so I retired from it uh, two years ago at the age of 81. Uh, So it seemed like it was time. And uh, I'm very happy to see it being run now so wonderfully by Dr. Karen Philbrick. I'm retired, but I'm still chairing three national, two national organizations and two local organizations all working on, on climate change. Karen Philbrick is the, uh, when when people will hear this show, she will have been the guest the week before. I just ah, interviewed her. Yeah, yes, great. She, she great is a leader. phenomenal talent. Yeah, so let me ask you, uh, we'll just stick with you, Rod, then we'll go around round table. Um, over the time in transit, so the other uh, fellows here have all been CEOs, executives. You've been on the board chair uh, kind of role and, and chaired a bunch of uh, boards, etc. What would you say is one of the most significant lessons for transit today that you could give us based on what you've what you've learned over your career? Well, Paul, I, I am very honored to be able to be associated with these three rascals who really <laughs> did the work. I just <laughs> sat up there on the podium and made policy decisions and gave them headaches. And uh, so it's really an honor to be allowed to be associated with the, with the real stars of the industry. Uh, I, I think, uh, well, a real crisis in America is, is the funding base. Uh, we, we've relied on the gas tax back when the gas tax was growing rapidly because the gallonage of gasoline was growing rapidly. Now the gasoline gallonage is, it's, topping out and, and beginning to drop rather rapidly as we shift over to electric. And, uh, and that source of funding is way inadequate. Even with the infrastructure bill just passed by terrific efforts by President uh, Biden, uh, we're woefully, woefully uh, below funding appropriate uh, levels to maintain and to build, modernize our transportation systems. We're, we're uh, I think I saw recently that the engineer, international engineering groups identify us as 27th in the world now in terms of our, our uh, uh, comparison with the leading countries of the world in terms of transportation infrastructure. Well, that's not pride worthy. And no. we've, got, we've got to figure out a way to create the funding 
necessary to maintain our position in transportation. If we don't, there's no way we can compete internationally with the other countries. Do you have any solutions, proposed solutions on how to do that funding? Well, I, I think the, uh, the probable uh, way to do it is to begin charging a vehicle miles travel fee for people operating transportation systems in the in the uh, well, except the public transportation system in the in the country, uh, so that we garner funding depending on the amount of miles you travel on the on the transportation systems, and uh, that funding then would uh, go into uh, maintaining building new system and maintaining the system. But in order to even get to a position of, of equity uh, to begin with, we're going to have to have several versions of the infrastructure bill that's just been passed to uh, bootstrap us up into co- a competitive position. Uh, Paul Tolliver, um, I, I know you're you're an advisor to some CEOs now in the industry, but um, could you give us uh, for you know for those who are CEOs right now or on their way to be a CEO? Give us some insight and some advice for the top executive of a transit agency, some stuff that you've learned over the years, because that's really what we do on the show as we interview CEOs. I focus, my history is I focused uh, on operations. Uh, there were a lot of other areas, a lot of great backgrounds on this panel. Uh, but I ended up uh, starting in operations in the 70s in Tulsa, and, and I stayed in that world. And I learned there uh, that each and every day we kind of open up, run our service, close down, and start all over the next day. And it's about uh, performing, meeting expectations. So today I'm actually on the lecture circuit too, and I'm talking about meeting expectations and how do we, first of all, before you can meet them, you have to have expectations. You have to know what they are. And I, and I beat that into CEO, young CEO or potential CEOs has. And then you have to have a way of measuring those expectations. So I talk a lot about measuring performance, talk about key performance indicators, talk about how to do it. And I talk about how to do it using the new technology that we have today. And and I talk about people having to know truly what their goals are, what are you indeed shooting for? So it makes it easier to manage. It's easier to check on your performance, know how you are doing. So I'm kind of, I focus a lot on the specifics about the technical level of managing a system. What are your expectations for ridership, uh, performance of your resources like miles per hour, passengers per hour, uh, expectations for your revenue, how much are you spending, not spending, and, you know, personnel performance, how are your people performing? Are they showing up to work? If not, do you have the right number of people? Now, there is have a checklist for CEOs. This is every CEO needs to be able to answer these questions every day so that when you are in charge of delivering for your public, your writers and your constituents, uh, you are able to uh, uh, tell them, show them that indeed that you have met expectations are on your way. So that's kind of what I focus on when I lecture and help my CEOs. Somebody called me a CEO whisperer. I like that term. So uh, I get hired a lot, especially some of the new young men and women who are new in that uh, role as a CEO. Hey, uh, Robert, tell us tell us some about uh, lessons you learned over your career. 
especially well, there in Boston, you where you work for, you know, where you were the head of one of the, you know, legacy systems. Yeah, when you come from the fourth largest and the first subway system in America, I was the godfather of infrastructure reinvestment, a state of good repair. Um, and back then, people were laughing at me, saying, you know, everything's under warranty, don't sweat it. Well, <laughs> it, was, it, it was a big issue for me because things are falling apart. And trying to get board members and people to understand how important it was to invest in the infrastructure. So I spent a lot of time focusing on that. And when I retired, I had so much on my mind that I, I, I penned a small book that I give away uh, called Footprints in the Snow. And it was sort of a, a vignettes of, of my time at the T, but also hoping to spear interest in people writing their stories. Because in transit, you know, we have a hundred stories, but everybody, nobody thinks it's important. And I think that it's your legacy. Um, your family needs to know, your, your, your friends and neighbors need to know, um, and the people in the industry uh, need to know how important it is in the, in the work that they do. I, you know, something that they're playing right now with an old playbook. You know, I could tell you how to deal with storms. I could tell you how to deal with, with terrorist attacks. I can't tell you how to deal with a pandemic. Fred, how about you? What are some of the lessons that you might want to pass on to folks in the industry today? I've been uh, successful primarily through uh, being able to gain the trust and respect of the employees. Uh, with that said, uh, I think uh, we've got to rethink in some ways uh, how we transition from the past to the future. Uh, one of the crises is going on now is, is the fact, not only the COVID, but the effects of that, along with the effect, effect of not being uh, an employer of choice uh, to attract the employees, if you will. And I think uh, we as an industry have come up with a different model, if you will, of how we do attract uh, uh, future employees uh, to the transit industry. We are labor intense, as you know. And on the other side of that is how, how do we retain them? Uh, so I think the model, if you will, of uh, you know, the flexibility, uh, all of, you know, when you think about the job, particularly driving, it's one of the worst. You got split hours, you work weekends, you got split days off uh, and all those kind of things. And money itself is not going to be the solution. I'm sorry about the phone. Uh, That's right. But the, uh, uh, the, uh, the industry itself, though, is, uh, is, is very much needed. And, uh, and I think uh, we can learn from the past and, and chart the future. Hey, Rod. So you've had uh, quite, a, quite an experience, probably more than uh, most anybody else on this panel, with high-speed rail. Uh, governors in California appointed you to the California High-Speed Rail Authority Board. You were chair emeritus. You were past chair of APTA, founder of APTA's High-Speed Intercity Rail Committee. Uh, National High Speed Rail Corridors Coalition, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Why can't we get high speed rail built here in America, my friend? It's very simple, Paul. Petroleum, the biggest lobbying group in the world, is the petroleum industry. Okay, and they they invest billions of dollars a year in changing your mind about uh, automobiles, and everything they tell you is that you have to have a car. And that car has to make big broom broom sounds, especially if you're a young person. And yet uh, petroleum and and coal are killing the planet. Uh, they're, they're not going to kill the planet. The planet's going to be here for the next several billion years. 
but uh, humans uh, are going to be not on that planet if we don't fix it in the next few years. And so I've, I've, I've got two grandbabies, that, four grandbabies that are just the most wonderful people in the world, and they deserve a future. So I'm fighting, I'm fighting through high-speed rail and, and uh, other sources to try to protect them. And by the way, the reason why I've focused on high-speed rail is because when it is high, high-speed rail is electrically powered. Right. And when you have a high-speed rail station in your downtown, it's almost imperative that you have an electrically powered feeder and distribution system. Trolleys, a metro rail, commuter rail, light rail, uh, uh, automated guideway transit systems are very easy then to interconnect with your high-speed rail station. And that's happening all over the, it's happened all over the world. It's finally beginning to happen in California. Speaking of California, one follow-up to that is, what's the status and like timeline uh, of, of potentially something happening there with California high-speed rail? The project in the Central Valley, uh, which has taken decades to get started, uh, is almost done uh, between Bakersfield and Merced. It's within three years of, of uh, having a rail and uh, rolling stock testing in that 171-mile corridor. Uh, it, it won't carry many people because that is not the populist center, but it is the bedroom center for the state. So if we can connect the bedrooms uh, of the Central Valley with the employment centers of Silicon Valley and San Francisco and the employment centers of Los Angeles, we've got the most profitable high-speed high rail system in the world. And that's what we're trying to do. Well, I wish you great success. I'm a strong believer in high-speed rail. I got to ride... Uh, the one in China, maybe 10 years ago near Shanghai. And it was just phenomenal then, and, you know, and I've ridden it in Europe and other places around the world. And, uh, you know, we, when I was CEO of the MTA in Baltimore, we were studying it. And of course, you know, I've been gone five years and they're still studying it. So it well, seems to take a while. Paul, the, the most ridiculous thing in the world is that China that started only 30 years ago on high-speed rail. We've been, we've been thinking about it now for over 70 years. Yeah. China, going starting 30 years ago, has over 20,000 over 20, miles, not kilometers, 20,000 miles of 235-mile-an-hour high-speed trains yeah. in operation with more under construction. That's amazing. Thank you. Hey, Paul, I want to ask you some, one of the hot topics right now, and I'm actually writing a book on the subject, is equity and inclusion in public transportation. I spent much of my career working uh, on the ADA side of transit. Uh, you know, I, for five years, I was working at WMATA for MV Transportation, kind of the day-to-day -day manager of their paratransit system and started my career there. People who have been traditionally kind of left out of life's opportunities and public transportation had the power through the ADA Act to bring them into all of life's opportunities. And now we're looking for uh, people of color and people perhaps of lower income who, who also haven't had the opportunities uh, that maybe other folks had. And, and the power of public transit right now to focus on that and to improve equity inclusion in our communities. Can you talk to that some? A little bit, kind of Maya, when I was CEO in Seattle, I had uh, that as a key challenge, Seattle's system uh, was a multi-city, single-county multi-city operation. Some cities were quite well off in the greater Seattle area, like Bellevue and Redmond, where Microsoft is. Yes. Uh, and some communities were not well off. And the issue of equity started raising their head. 
why are we putting so much service here versus here? And to the point where some of the solutions in my mind were political solutions and not based on uh, what our customers wanted, needed. And I think we're starting to see today some of the cities uh, rise up and say to the public transit systems of the world, maybe we should rethink as to how we provide service. Maybe we should look at those communities that have historically in the past been ignored or not service that is commiserate with their uh, need for service. And I think we're seeing that push now. Cities and communities and systems like the Regional Transit Authority of New Orleans, I yes. think has developed a plan that restructures their service. So it focuses on those communities where service is really needed uh, and not a focus on service that caters to, I hate to say this, but to a tourist crowd that rides the streetcar. You see on the other end of the country, Seattle, where they are also rewriting their plans based on how and who they feel really deserve and need that type of service. So I think these, this new idea of equity is being led by where do we need to put the service and not necessarily where the, uh, based on uh, the, the amount of tax revenues generated through some political subdivision. So it's, it was very interesting and a controversial topic throughout this country, but I think we're in the right path if we as an industry are going to continue to serve and be a relevant, a relevant mode for our, for, the, for our constituents. So yes, I think that's a key issue that we have to continue to deal with. Fred, you know, during the pandemic, uh, we, we saw the power of public transit to keep our whole economy going, right? So when we told everyone you can't ride unless you're an essential worker, we still were at 50% ridership in many cities because the folks who are running the water plant, working at the hospital, the pharmacy, the people who work in the grocery store, these essential workers, they're the ones that really need public transit. How do you see that going forward? Are we seeing kind of a reorientation of what the role of public transit is now, do you think, that it's more than just the commuters going to the tall buildings in downtown? Well, I personally, I think we need to focus uh, uh, more on the fact that we need to make sure our vehicles are just as sanitized as a hospital, if you will. Uh, we need the public to understand and appreciate and respect that. Uh, our, our model is not around uh, trying to have fewer pastures in a bus. Our model really is have more pastures in a bus to, to be sustainable. And with that said, uh, I think uh, as we move forward to make sure our vehicles uh, can transport more and also protect the operator, uh, even with the electrification of fleets now, uh, for several years, we're, uh, we're still going to have a person on the vehicle uh, with the, elect uh, when I say electrification, particularly uh, uh, on the uh, automation of vehicles, not, uh, uh, not the electrification of the bus. But with that said, uh, I think more, uh, the more we can make sure the, uh, the riders and the employees are safe riding in a vehicle and the capacity can be there to be sustainable is the future that we're faced with. And Robert, what do you see as the future? All the hot trends that are happening right now, uh, which one do you like to focus on or ones? Well, I'm here in Jacksonville. Matt Ford's doing a great job with autonomous vehicles. And yes. so I see that as the future. 
Um, but my biggest fear right now is the workforce, trying to find people to do the job and making it attractive, changing the work schedules to, to get people on, on board. Uh, I think that we could be looking at a, a pathway to citizenship, if you ever might say, to take these public service jobs because uh, we're, we're in, a, in, a, in a unique position right now. We're going to have the money well, and we won't have the, the, the manpower to be able to put this forward. So that's my biggest concern. That's great, guys. Um, I wish we had a lot more time and maybe we'll do a longer version at one point, but I want to do one more round of questions. And that is any final thoughts you would leave for our listeners. Remember that, you know, our listeners are thousands of listeners around the world. Most of them work in or around the public transit industry. Rod, what thoughts do you have for them? Well, in, in deference to the schism in politics in America right now, I want to really stress that transportation is not political. Transportation is a public service. Everybody needs it. Even those who don't use it need it because the people uh, that uh, that are on the freeway coming up the freeway for you could be on the on the mass transportation and out of your way. So we we got to remember that that our what we're talking about our responsibility mass transportation is not political. It is a public service, and we've got to figure out a way to make it available to every person who uh, would have any ability to have access to it. And we need to convert the power for that public service uh, to electricity and away from petroleum. And that's the thought to leave. And uh, Fred, what are your final thoughts? Uh, Following up on uh, Rod's uh, comment, um, I think we should uh, spend the uh, new money wisely. Uh, I think we need to be focused on the fact that uh, uh, of mobility more so than just moving cars. Uh, I think uh, it's imperative that uh, we uh, focus a lot on shared ride. Um, And I think we need to get our systems in cities, particularly in the metropolitan areas, we need to get it to where that when you wake up uh, and prepare, uh, start preparing to go to work, if, if you're going to some location, that you also know that you have an, uh, an alternate to an automobile. You should be able to uh, have the flexibility uh, to move that way and move in that uh, direction. And, um, uh, and I think we've got a long ways to go to, to change our attitude toward that, but I, I think it's a must because we're not gonna be able to widen our streets and highways through these metropolitan areas. Uh, and we need to start thinking more and more about the fact that uh, we've got to share the ride. Or otherwise, we're going to uh, shut our cities down, particularly the core of it. Robert, final thoughts? Final thoughts. Um, you know, we looked at to invest in education. And we can't start soon enough uh, to make people aware of how essential public transportation really is. You know, hitting on to Rod's and, and Fred's thoughts was the fact that transportation is the one job that you do. You make a difference in people's lives every day, whether they use it or not. And so it's important to be able to educate our young, um, to make them aware of how important public transportation is and what an essential lifespan it is for, for, the, for the birth of this nation and to keep it moving forward. Thank you. And Paul, since this was your idea, you're the cleanup batter. Well, yeah, I'm going to just follow up quickly with, I guess, all of them. But uh, for all of us and those who are watching, don't forget that there are still those in our society 
who truly need us, who have no other means of mobility other than the public transit system. We need to keep them high on our list of priorities. I know there are a lot of new and sexy things that we talk about, uh, automated vehicles, new technologies, new ways of collecting fares, new ways of providing mobilities other than the public transit system. But there are still so many people in our societies and societies around this globe that individuals still depend on us to help them get to work, to school, to church, to shopping. And if we weren't there, uh, there is no other way for them to make that happen. So don't forget our first and I think most important constituent. Rod Derridan, Paul Tolliver, Robert Prince, Fred Gilliam, thank you so much for your service to our industry and your service to our nation and how you continue to serve by passing on your wisdom to folks uh, every day that are working in this industry. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Transit Unplugged In-Depth with our guests, Paul Tolliver, Robert Prince, Rod Deirdrin, and Fred Gilliam. This was a really inspirational episode with people who laid the foundations for the public transit systems we enjoy today. Now, next week on Transit Unplugged News and Views, we have Billy Terry, Executive Director of the National Transit Institute at Rutgers. And then the following week is the second part of our Legacy Leaders series. If you have questions, comments, or would like to be a guest on Transit Unplugged, feel free to email us anytime at info.transitunplugged.com. Until next week, ride safe and ride happy.